But this summer, we are working our way backwards through the letter of Paul to the Romans. You have probably studied this letter many times over the years. You know it as a book rich and deep in theology, which is true. But what we're asking this summer is, what if Paul's intention was really to use that theology to challenge the way we live together in this thing called church? What if all of that theology is supposed to solve the trouble that they were having in the church at Rome? What if we missed Paul's purpose? If we spend too much time just drilling down only on the theology? Because what if the life change becomes more clear if we really look at the setting at the end of the book and work our way backwards through the rest of the letter? Now, if you are hoping for a verse-by-verse deep dive into Romans this summer, I'm sorry, but you, let's say it up front, you are going to be sorely disappointed. What we need in our day is to listen to Paul as pastor. Because Paul as pastor changes life. He brings family unity into a world divided. And I must say that this is going to be, I hope, a challenging study. Because if you think they weren't divided in the first century church in Rome, that's pretty funny. If you think we're not divided in the 21st century world, that's even funnier. (laughs) Paul is all about living out our theology. And that's the driving force behind the book of Romans. And that's the idea that I want to capture this summer. Now, I'm going to be very clear. I'm using the technical definition of summer. So I have till late September to finish this. Even if we've started in the technical spring. So, you know. And I have to also say that this, it's a bit of a challenge for me. Some of you still remember Dan Kazarian. Dan Kazarian died several years ago. Dan's whole thing when I first came a long time ago was just stand up there and talk. And let us ask questions. Like, well, that ain't happening. And this guy doesn't do extemporaneous well. I always get in trouble if I do extemporaneous. So this is as close to a sermon series as we're going to get in Dan Kazarian style. However, I must say this week, finally, I have a plan. The the pastor is happy because he knows what he's doing on every Sunday. And so that's a bit of a relief for me. So there is a plan, but the challenge in this series is very real because I think if this is going to make sense and if I'm going to bring you along with all of this, the cookie jar is pretty high on this series and the theology is kind of up there and there's a lot of stuff you need to know and I'm like, "Mm, this isn't a theology class. This this has got to be practical. And so it's going to require some commitment to some theology and some theological thought which is probably not as appropriate on a Sunday morning as normal. So how do I make this reachable for me and keep it on a level that's going to bring family unity in a divided world? That's my struggle every week. You don't even, yeah, we'll just do it. That's what you're thinking, you know, whatever. Crocodile tears for the pastor. 
But if we're going to accomplish our goals, well, my goals, we're going to end up summarizing huge chunks of the book of Romans. But the last I checked, you all have a copy of the book of Romans, right? So if we skip a chunk, you could read it. You could take your Bible out during the week and, and catch up. So that's my position, and I'm sticking with it. So as we've started the gospel, the gospel, the book of Romans, we started at the back, and what have we learned so far? Well, we learned that this letter was written to Rome. Paul wrote it from Corinth, approximately, and he sent it to Rome with, with a woman named Phoebe. She probably read that to all of these small house churches that dotted the landscape in Rome. She was a generous woman. She was a wealthy woman. She was one of the leaders at the church at Sancrea, which was near Corinth. And she brought this letter directly from the pen of Paul to the churches in Rome. Romans 16 seems to indicate that there were at least five house churches and perhaps as many as 15 house churches in Rome. They lived mostly in the, or they, they, the churches were mostly in the poorer areas of Rome. So the believers in Rome numbered, you know, between 100 and very generously 700. So it's not a large group of believers. They're made up of Greeks and Romans and Jews. A lot of racial diversity if you read Romans 16. And though the churches were small, maybe 10 people fit in a house. If you had a wealthier person, maybe you could get 40. They had their problems. And last week we looked at, at Romans 14 and 15, which says, you know, there are weak believers in these churches, and there are strong believers in these churches. Now, these, these are real people in very real churches. And the weak believers or followers of Jesus seem to be the Jewish believers who wanted to follow the Torah. And the strong are the Gentile believers who do not follow the Torah. Some are stronger, some are weaker. Some probably fall into the undecided or neutral category. And they're not just divided along racial lines, Jew-Gentile, but that seems to be the largest division that you'll find in the churches in Rome. Now, why do I think that these divisions and this struggle is at the heart of what Paul is talking about in the letter? Because Paul mentions in every major section of the book Jew-Gentile relationships. And in Rome in these days, the Gentiles outnumber the Jews. Paul concludes his clear discussion last Sunday of the weak and the strong in Romans 14 and 15 by quoting the Old Testament on what topic? Gentile inclusion. Got your Bibles? Turn there. Romans 15. We'll read this. Romans 15, verse 7. Paul writes this, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, the Jews. 
one who will arise to rule over the nations, the Savior. In him, the Gentiles will hope. This is a Jew-Gentile thing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The conflict in Rome is intense. Both sides are very passionate. The strong pretty much hate the weak. They look down on them as lowly and worthless. And the weak in the book of Romans, they kind of take on a godlike position. They're judging the strong. They're condemning them. And this isn't just a theological agreement, disagreement. This is a disagreement about how do you really live our theology the gospel, the message we've gotten from Jesus. And it's ripping this faith community apart. Does it sound familiar? And in Rome, because of the main conflicts, they were about food laws and days. What, what do we do on certain days? The sharing of a meal between these two groups was virtually impossible. Watch this. Kosher. That's what this is all about. People who do not keep kosher often say how difficult it is, but actually keeping kosher is not really difficult in and of itself. What makes it difficult to keep is the fact that the rest of the world doesn't keep it. As we shall see, the basic underlying rules are fairly simple. If you buy your meat at a kosher butcher and buy only kosher certified products at the market, the only thing you really need to think about is the separation of meat and dairy. Keeping kosher only becomes difficult when you try to eat in non-kosher restaurants or at the home of a person who does not keep kosher. In those situations, a lack of knowledge about the host ingredients and food preparation make it very difficult to keep kosher. Some commentators, both Jewish and Christian, have pointed out that this may well have been part of what God had in mind as it makes it more difficult for practicing Jews to socialize with those who do not share the same religion. Did you catch that last line? This may have been part of what God had in mind, as it makes it more difficult for practicing Jews to socialize with those who do not share the same religion. They're supposed to be unique. But that's what the Jewish culture has been about for a thousand years before the writing of the book of Romans. So, do they really share the same religion now or not? And there's the rub in Romans. For there is the pastor heart of Paul as he's writing this letter. Rome is the capital of the empire. It's a city that's all about privilege and power. If you're a Gentile. The theme of privilege shows up in Romans in both the weak, because the weak what? They got the covenant. They've got the privilege of this thousand years of heritage. And the strong, they've got the privilege of holding the higher status in Rome. They're Roman citizens. The theme of power shows up here in the strong because they've got the cultural and financial probably power in that day. And remember, the Jews have only been back in the city of Rome for about five or six years. Claudius expelled them. They were gone. And in those five or six years, the Gentiles ran the show. 
And they've obviously, the Jews have now returned, and the power dynamic has shifted. The Gentiles now run the show, which makes it awkward for the Jews. And Paul seems to see himself as what? He's among the strong, or at least he's on the side of the strong. However, he doesn't expect everyone to come to his same conclusions. He allows space for people to come to their own convictions, as long as they do it in peace. And what's the key? Romans 15, 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Welcome one another to the table. Eat together. Stay together. And I think we're beginning to get a taste for the context of this letter. But before we head a little further backwards, there's another piece. There's a rather interesting paragraph at the end of chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, we're going to explore that paragraph today. Romans 15. It really starts like in verse 23, but we're going to provide some context. In verse 17. Romans 15, 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power and signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him I will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Verse 23, but now there's no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, there, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that, I have received, that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Paul has never been to Rome. That's very clear. But he wants to go to Rome. That's obvious. But how is he going to decide when is the right time to visit this, these churches? And out of that subject come two very important points. Number one, it's going to impact our study and our understanding of the letter. And then second, it's going to impact something very practical in our lives. So let's look first about what's the, the, what, how does this help us understand the context and the purpose of the letter to the Romans. The first the thing that it does first is the book is written to believers. This book is clearly written to churches who have faith and who are following Jesus. To whom and for what purpose was it written? Well, he says it very clearly here. It was not written to provide for them the knowledge of the way of salvation. Now, that's how we use the book. 
But that's not Paul's primary purpose. He is not writing this letter to transform them from unbelievers to believers. Verse 24, for I plan to do so. I mean, why does he want to go to Rome? Here it is, verse 24. I plan to do so to come see you when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there. And after I've enjoyed your company for a while, I'm not there to, to, to convert you. They are already believers. Paul knows, knows that. He's not using this letter to reach them with the plan of how to escape from hell. We can dive forward into Romans 1 where he explains this even more. In Romans 1 verse 7 he says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace to you and peace from God our Father from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, For I first I thank my God through Jesus Christ because of you all. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. You're believers and you're, it's, you're making a change and a difference. God whom I serve in my spirit is preaching the gospel of his son. Is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers all the time. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. See, the great theme of this book might not be how do you get saved from the lake of fire. The purposes of this book is not to teach the way of eternal salvation or the Romans road like we use it. Oh, it's there, but that's not Paul's purpose. These people already possessed eternal life. They had the guarantee of that. This book is about how a believer needs to live appropriate to the salvation we've already experienced. This is another of Paul's pastoral letters. And we often miss that emphasis. This is clearly written to people who are already followers of Jesus. But because these followers of Jesus are not living their theology as they should, Paul writes this letter. They had huge problems in the church of Rome because they didn't live the gospel. And maybe that's what all of this theology in the book of Romans is really all about. How are the strong supposed to live and act? How are the weak supposed to live and act? And what are we going to do with it? How do we live our theology? So Paul wanted to come to Rome, but that visit was, was subordinate to a bigger strategy. And it is that strategy that we, that we discover the audience of this letter. Verse 11 of chapter 1, I long to see you so that for the purpose of imparting to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. These are followers of Jesus in the capital of the empire. And that's who he's writing to. Paul writes this letter to believers. Second thing I think we can get from this text is something much more practical. It can teach us about making decisions. I think we get in, in this paragraph kind of a glimpse into the heart and the mind of Paul. For him, interruptions were opportunities to grow and to serve. And, and it's that balance that we need to find. When we get interrupted in life, we've got to find that balance. What are we, what's God doing to help me grow? What's he doing to help me serve? 
And it's Paul's explanation to the Roman believers as to why he hasn't been there yet that we learn how he makes decisions and he mo- how he models a godly way of life. He never says, I haven't been called or I've been called to you or God told me to do this or God told me not to do that. It's the way we talk. It's not the way Paul talks. So six things. I think there's seven, actually. You tell me. Are there six or seven? I think there's seven. There used to be six, but now there's seven. Are they numbered? There's seven. I'd have to flip through here. How does, God, how does Paul model a godly way to live? Number one, Paul made decisions based on well-ordered priorities. He, he knew what he wanted to do because he had some priorities. What were his priorities? His first priority was to do what? Evangelize Greece. Finish the evangelization, the evangelization of Greece. Verse 20 of chapter 15. It has always been my ambition to preach where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. That is why I've often been hindered to come to you. I got my number one priority is to reach Greece. It's taking longer, basically, is what he's saying, to do that, to plant enough churches. So I've been doing that. I'm going to finish that before I move on to anything else. So then certainly he's reaching the end of that in Greece. So now he's going to go to Rome? Not quite. Second priority, go to Jerusalem. I didn't put a map because I assume you know the difference between Spain over here and Jerusalem over here and Rome in between. And so he's in Corinth. Let's see, where's where's your map? Yeah, so he's in Corinth. So he's going to go this way before he goes to Spain. Hmm, interesting. That's opposite direction. Verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. Really? For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor, poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and they indeed owe it to them. So he's got, they've been collecting this offering because there's great poverty in Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem next. Once he gets Jerusalem, then for sure Rome's number one, right? Not exactly. Verse 23, the third priority is to go to Spain. But now that there have been no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I'm not coming to you. I mean, I'm, you're, you're, we're passing through. And you can assist me on my journey there. You can help fund this journey after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Priority number three is Spain. I'm going to raise some money for that trip when I get to Rome. He's the consummate missionary. Rome had the gospel. Spain did not. So priority number four Ah, visit Rome, finally. Greece, Jerusalem, Spain, and in passing Rome. Verse 24, I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Were they disappointed with this itinerary? We don't really know. Were they offended by his priorities? I don't know. But he had his priorities and he lived his life based on those spiritual priorities. Second thing I learned in this paragraph is that family unity was critically important to Paul. Family unity, the unity of the church. 
He placed a high value on promoting unity among the churches. And when he, this offering that he takes to Jerusalem is, a, is an issue that's come up in several of his letters, especially 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Because Paul felt that the plight of his brothers in Jerusalem, he knew of their suffering. And everywhere he went in the Gentile world, he talked about that. And so he took an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And as he does that, he reveals his, his heart for the poor and his desire to promote unity in the body. We're Gentiles, but we can help the Jews. Because, you know, they've helped us. They've given us the gospel. And he understood that the Gentile believers, we share in the spiritual blessings, same blessings as these poor Jewish saints. So it's our obligation to help them. Verse 28, so after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, the rich help the poor, the strong support the weak. And that, the whole church gets stronger. Number three, Paul understood the importance of personal integrity in financial matters. He's going with the offering. Few things will harm a ministry quicker than questions about financial integrity. If people feel that the money is not being handled with integrity, they're not going to give anymore. And pastors, we've been disgraced because we've taken advantage. Now, we being, you know what I mean. And they, they line their own pockets with the generosity of the people. And so Paul is determined to do all things with transparency. And so he commits, I'm going to go with this offering back to Jerusalem so that everything we've collected ends up in Jerusalem. Here's the money the Gentile saints have contributed toward your need. And that's going to go a long way to cement the bonds of trust between the Jewish and the Gentile wings of the church. Number four, Paul did not know exactly when he's coming to Rome. He didn't promise them anything. He clearly states, it's my desire to do that, but I really can't say when that's going to happen. And so he lays out his, his priorities. He tells them his immediate plans. And then he says, you know, I hope I can come on my way to Spain. You see, that's the way of wisdom. He doesn't set a date or make promises he can't keep. The best thing he can do is make some indefinite statement. I'm coming on the way. And sometimes doing God's will, that's the best way and course to follow. Because we don't know the future. We cannot be sure how events will actually play out. When Harold Macmillan was prime minister of the UK, he was asked, what represented the greatest challenge for a statesman? And he said, events, my dear boy, events. Life has a way of catching us by surprise. We make our plans, and we ought to plan. But our plans do not equal God's will. Events will intervene. A phone call at midnight, a sudden financial crisis, an unexpected pregnancy, a check in the mail. Will you marry me? You've got cancer. Honey, we're moving to Boise. <laughs> When's the moving van coming? No. <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men 
will go astray. And Paul understood that. So when he announced what he was going to do, he didn't make any promises and he didn't set any dates. Number five, Paul was optimistic about a future he couldn't guarantee. He didn't really know, but he was optimistic about that future. Verse 29, I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. There's a, there's a note of optimistic hope and confidence in that stain, saying, not only does he fully expect to come to Rome, but he fully expects to come with the blessing of God. And beneath those words lies a foundation of faith in the control of God over every detail of life. He believed, as Psalm says, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him, and the Lord will make his path straight. That didn't mean it was going to be an easy path. He often spoke about his beatings and his lashes that he experienced. For 2 Corinthians 11 says, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And then the next verse talks about, you know, I've got the daily burden of responsibility for all these churches. It's overwhelming. Paul's life was not easy, and yet he learned in every situation to be what? Content. How can you be content when you're getting beaten up and you're suffering all these trials? The only answer could be that he had a big view of God, one so large that God's will included the worst things that could have happened to him. The bigger your God, the greater your capacity to survive the darkest moments of life. So when Paul says that he plans to come to Rome with the full blessings of Christ, he means that he expects that no matter what else may happen, God is going to orchestrate all these events so that I do make it there. And when that happens, he'll be blessed and he'll bring a blessing. And his faith gave him optimism about a future that he couldn't guarantee. Number six, Paul's delay in going to Rome, it proved to be a blessing he couldn't have imagined. Verse 23 says that Paul's longed for years to come there. He expands on that in Romans 1 when he says, In my prayers at all times I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come. I want to do this. I've been praying about it. I'm eager to have it happen. No one in Rome could, could doubt his deep love for this church that he'd never been to. And that long list of names in, in Romans 16 demonstrate his intimate knowledge of that congregation. And you might ask, well, if Paul so wanted to go to Rome and if he prayed about it for so many years, and if those Christians were constantly on his heart and on his mind, and if he longed to see them so deeply, then why didn't God answer his prayer sooner? Well, the text offers one answer. The text says Paul was hindered, but not in a bad way. See, not all hindrances are from the devil. In this case, Paul was hindered by God's call to preach the gospel where Christ had yet been named, not yet been named. 
Someone else then had gone to Rome and established these churches. And that being the case, Paul would focus on being a pioneer missionary to cities in Turkey and Greece and Albania along the Balkan Peninsula. And if we study Paul's missionary method, it's clear that he went to the, to the leading cities in each region and he preached the gospel and planted a church so that that church could then take the message to the smaller churches, to the suburbs, so to speak, and then finally to the rural areas and villages. In that sense, he had a missionary strategy designed to make the best use of his limited time and energy. But we could ask our question in another way. Paul, Rome's the capital of the entire empire. It is given the most important city in the world. What happens in Rome matters more than what happens in Athens or Corinth or Thessalonica or Antioch or even Jerusalem. Rome rules the world. So why wouldn't you drop everything and go to Rome? And I think that weighed on his mind and on his heart. He knew that Rome was the number one city in the world. Probably part of the reason why he wanted to go there so badly. So why didn't he drop everything and go? Because he had his priorities. And he stuck to them. Seven. Paul could not have foreseen how the future played out. Well, we get some, some hints in the New Testament that he did actually eventually make it to Rome. However, when he wrote this letter from Corinth, he planned to travel there on his own to Jerusalem, which he did go to Jerusalem, and then on to Rome, which he didn't do. In fact, he didn't even have to raise money for that trip because the government paid his way. What a deal. He's arrested in Jerusalem. He's imprisoned. He's tried in Caesarea. He's sent by ship to Rome, which he didn't have to pay for. There's a shipwreck and all that. But he knew none of that as he wrote this letter. We don't really know whether he made it to Spain eventually or not. Tradition kind of says he did, but we don't really know. We know he made it to Jerusalem. We know he made it to Rome. And we know that Paul didn't know about this arrest and trial and imprisonment and shipwreck when he wrote this letter. But based on what he knew about, what we know about Paul, I don't think he would have changed his plans. He wouldn't have gone straight to Spain. He would have kept the course. And that is where we all must end our search to know God and do His will. We make our plans and we make them based on the correct spiritual priorities. Human planning and divine guidance are allies, not enemies. But like Paul, we will often find our plans are delayed and sometimes they're changed by events we couldn't foresee. So where does that leave us as we face the big and the small decisions of life? That all depends on how big your God is. If we serve a big God who is truly sovereign over the details of life, then we move forward knowing our lives are in his hands. You want my advice? You want to know and do God's will? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Make the best plans that you can. Humbly submit yourself at that point to your heavenly Father and say, your will be done. 
and just take the next step that's in front of you and trust God to take care of everything else. You see, the will of God is not a destination. It is a journey. We look at it as a target we have to hit. There is no target we have to hit, save the target of stay within the moral will of God. The will of God is a walk with God. Remember what Job said in Job 23.10, he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. See, God knows the way I take even when I don't. He knows the way I take when I can't see it very clearly. He knows the way I take even when I get lost. See, walking with Jesus is a journey whose destination lies somewhere beyond the horizon. None of us ever arrive. When we think, I've made it at last, you know what happens. (laughs) There's a curve in the road. Life suddenly changes. Because Paul put it this way, I've not yet reached my goal. I'm not perfect, but Christ has taken hold of me. So I keep on running. I keep on struggling to take hold of the prize. My friends, I don't feel that I've already arrived, but I forget what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead. Our God is infinitely creative in the ways that he deals with us as his children. Let our our life motto as we seek to do God's will be this, expect the unexpected and enjoy the journey. For all of us, the future lies behind the hidden hands of God, but he loves us. And it is enough to know that God loves us and that he is for us so we can trust him with the details of life which is exactly what Paul models right here. Let's pray. Father, thank you. As we get a glimpse into the heart and the passion and the mind of Paul, he didn't spiritualize the future. He made his priorities, and he trusted you with with moving him within those priorities. So as we begin to to understand this book, we pray that your spirit would guide us and change us, that we would live our theology as we study it this summer. In Jesus' name, amen.